in this first part of our um, session, we're going to address a preliminary question on the nature of the Roman Catholic Gospel. So before we decide whether or not the Reformation is over, we should make our mind of what is the Catholic Gospel, because the Reformers uh, dealt with 16th century Roman Catholicism, and for them, in their context, they had good reasons to initiate that protest. And you all know that protest is not something primarily against something else, but for the truth of the gospel. So the true nature of Protestantism is not that it is against something primarily. It is primarily for, pro, in Latin means for, in favor of the truth of the gospel. And when you are in favor of the gospel, of course, you have to set up, to set biblical boundaries. And uh, you will have to say, uh, you will be against, against false teaching, against errors, but primarily based on the affirmation of the truth of the gospel. So in order to decide whether or not the protest is still on, we have to address the issue, what is at stake with the Catholic Gospel? What was at stake then, and what is at stake now? And in doing this, I am uh, introducing a kind of brief theological definition of Roman Catholicism. Now, I take full responsibility for this definition. Every definition is not a neutral one, only a, a, an objective. Uh, it, it involves assessment, evaluation. It involves theological judgment or assessment. So I take full responsibility. But in order to understand the big picture of what we are talking about when we are talking about Roman Catholicism, and given the complexity of it, the fact that it, it is an historical tradition tracing its roots back in the first century of Christianity, and it is also an institutional tradition or an institutionalized tradition having, being, having a very complex uh, operational system as well as being a global institution being present all over the world. At times, one of our problems is that we select the kind of Catholicism that we want to look at, and we project what we see in our little window of understanding, we project the li limited understanding that we have onto the whole of Catholicism. Now, if we do that, we, we, we we do a reductionist approach. We follow something reductive. We exchange the part with the whole. And many of us have Catholic friends. Maybe many of us have come from Catholic backgrounds. Many of us have had experiences in Catholic settings or families. 
And we tend to think that Catholicism is what we know of Catholicism. The problem is that Catholicism is bigger than what we know, is much more complex than what we understand it is. So this is an attempt to stretch our understanding in order to um, put in a uh, brief definition uh, lots of material, lots of perspectives, and um, suggesting that it is possible actually to um, come to a introductory definition of what Catholicism is all about. So I suggest that Catholicism is globally speaking, historically speaking, institutionally speaking, theologically speaking, in all its varieties, regional varieties, doctrinal schools, spiritual trends, is a deviation from biblical Christianity. So we are not talking about mainstream Christianity, mainstream biblical Christianity that is rooted in the Bible and then witnessed in the life of the historical Christian church. It is part of this process having deviated from mainstream biblical Christianity. A deviation from biblical Christianity that has consolidated over the centuries. And by way of doing different things in combination with one another, by clustering around an imperial institution. The Catholic Church looks like, from the institutional point of view, it looks like an empire. And why? It's a top-down organization. It is a hierarchical organization. The Pope being what, in ancient Rome, was the role of the emperor, the Roman emperor. You know that the Roman Empire had a very, um, um, had, a, had a structure, a political structure, with the Roman emperor standing on the top with absolute powers, the senate having, being a college of uh, aristocrats, of noble people, helping him to rule the empire, and then you had the free men who had certain rights in society. And then at the bottom, you had the slaves. So a pyramid, the Pope or the emperor, the senate, the free men, the slaves. Now, what happened in the course of the first centuries of the church, especially from the fourth century onwards? These structure, pyramidical, top-down, imperial structure, was translated into an ecclesiastical structure, into the structure of the church. And uh, each of the um, aspects and members of the imperial structure became part of the ecclesiastical structure. So the emperor was 
replaced by the Christian emperor, the Pope, in the church, claiming absolute powers, hierarchical powers. The Senate, the group of privileged people ruling the empire together with the emperor, became part of this, uh, of the court around the Pope, the curia, the gathering of ecclesiastical dignitaries, uh, noble people, helping him to rule the affairs of the church. The free men, those who had certain rights, became the uh, clergymen, the clergy class, the class of the clergy people, having certain rights, sacramental rights, and being considered as belonging to a different order than the rest of the people. And then the slaves, people without rights, only in a sense being passive in society, receiving what the emperor or the senate of the free men would decide, became the laity with no rights, with no real role in the church. And so you see that it, it didn't take, it didn't happen overnight, but as the Roman Empire faded away, this imperial ecclesiastical institution became more powerful. So when the Roman Empire ended in the Western world, what was left was not a vacuum. What was left was an imperial church that had absorbed the imperial structure from top down. And this imperial church has been going on since. And it is what the Catholic Church still is. If you think about it, it is an imperial structure basically shaped by imperial criteria rather than being shaped by biblical criteria when it comes to church life. Top-down organization, political power, absolute power at the top, no involvement and power at the bottom. This is what the empire looked like and this is what the church replaced and uh, developed. So clustering around an imperial Roman institution and the Pope uh, took over imperial prerogatives. The Pope being the pontifex, pontifex, comes from a Latin word, the bridge builder. It was an imperial title that only Roman emperors could have, and they had the right to build bridges over the river Tiber in Rome. And as the, as the emperors ended their time, the popes became pontifex, took the title for them, and uh, in the understanding that they were now bridging the distance between God and man. They would stand in between. They would stand bridging the gap between God and man. Centering on its sacramental system. So 
the church became centered on its uh, sacramental outworkings, imperial structure centered on the sacraments, grounding itself in its, on its synergistic theology, that is, uh, wanting, having confused ideas about what is the role of God, what is the action of God, what is the gift of God, and what is our responsibility. Blurring that line, very important line to be respected according to biblical criteria, and ascribing to God what is God's, and receiving what is our responsibility. That line was blurred in terms of this synergistic theology, man wanting to do cooperating with God in order to receive salvation, and developing an abnormal ecclesiology, a view and experience of the church that went beyond biblical criteria. Roman Catholicism is an abnormal ecclesiology. Everything has to do with this augmented a consideration of the church. The church taking full uh, center stage instead of being a community created by God in order to live out the gift of salvation, it became the principal character of, Christian, of Christianity. Absorbing pagan elements from various streams of ancient culture and being fueled by its universal, that is, Catholic project of embracing the whole world. Catholic means universal. And uh, in a way, the genius of Roman Catholicism is to combine these two elements. Roman Catholicism, universality, Catholicism, embracement, global outlook with a Roman center. Catholicity, embracement, and Roman center. And the combination of these two elements is what makes Roman Catholicism unique. In a way, in our modern world, we have many universalistic projects. That is, projects which tend to, um, to suggest the need for inclusive patterns of life and thought. But Roman Catholicism is not only an inclusive project. It relates that Catholic embracement to the central institutions of Rome. And the two go together. At times with some tensions, but it has been working quite well for two millennia, almost. Roman Catholicism retains significant theistic Christian elements, retains significant Christian elements in its outlook. For instance, the Trinity and a sense of morality. Yet, because of its blurred theological system, it departs from biblical Christianity at all points in different ways and degrees of intensity, resulting in a confused and distorted religion. You see, the point is that once there is a genetic disorder, this genetic disorder will display 
in all the cells, in all parts of the life of the church. The problem is not located in one specific, one or two or three issues or doctrines, but the problem is everywhere because of the nature of this institution that has absorbed different elements, it has encapsulated them into this imperial structure and it has promoted this Catholic vision wanting to bring about the complexity and the richness of human life and the human world within the structures of the Roman system. And this makes Catholicism a blurred theological system departing from biblical Christianity, retaining significant elements within it, but because of this genetic disorder uh, showing the problem in all of its parts. So, I want to suggest that if we look for a a biblical tool to understand what we're talking about and a biblical tool to assess not only the Roman Catholic Church but also our own churches, our own lives. Second Corinthians chapter 1, the second part of the chapter, is an interesting um, biblical text to look at in order to uh, have and learn how to assess a given church or a given movement. You, you know that in, the, uh, in this chapter, the Apostle Paul is dealing with some criticisms that uh, some of his enemies or uh, some, of, um, some of the people that were not happy with him were circulating in the Corinth church. Paul had to change his mind when it, came, when it came to plan his apostolic missionary journey. And so he had to postpone the visit to Corinth. And so he writes to say, I had to change my mind because of certain circumstances he will be uh, referring to in later chapters. But the people who were not happy with him uh, took advantage of this change of, of the plans, of apostolic plans, to criticize the apostolic authority of Paul. And the argument was the following. Look, this man changed his mind when it, ca when it comes to his uh, journey. He is not reliable. He is a man who changes his mind. How can he be an apostle if he changes his mind? He is not able to plan his journey. How can he be an apostle of Christ? And Paul understood that the, problem, the issue there was not his ability to plan a journey. is not his ability to be a good tour operator. That was not the issue. The issue was his apostolic authority. And uh, the, the trustworthiness of his message. And so, in dealing with this criticism, he comes with this language of yes and no. And he said, when I came to you, my message was not yes and no to the gospel. But it was a full yes. Our message is not partly in line with the gospel and partly against it. Yes 
and no. But our gospel is being a full amen. Let it be. So it is. A full yes to the gospel of Jesus. And so this language of yes and no helps us to understand what is at stake with the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is at the same time the church that contains elements that can be related to the gospel, so yes to the gospel, but at the same time they are intertwined, inherently linked with elements which are contrary to the gospel. To the point that the end result is neither a yes, full yes, neither a full no, it's a combination of those. How do you read this? Difficult to read it. But you have to understand. Because it's neither a full yes nor a full no. It's a combination. And the problem with this church is that this combination has been given dogmatic status. That is unchangeable form. And not only that, it has been given an institutional political outlook. Now, I want to, I want to say that all of us, we struggle with our yes responses and answers to the gospel, and we always struggle with our no answers to the gospel. So this is not just a tool for the Catholic Church. We are not arrogantly saying they got it wrong, we got it right. We, st we stand under the authority of the Word of God, and every day we have to ask ourselves, we want to be faithful to the gospel. We want our lives to reflect a full yes to the gospel, a full amen to the gospel. And we want to be purified by the residual no elements to the gospel that are still tempting us. But the problem with the church is that it is an institution based on this combination, retaining elements but blurring them and by, with the same breath, affirming elements of the gospel and affirming elements which are contrary to the gospel and putting them in a well-established system that has been going on for centuries. How does it work? Let, let's look at how it works uh, um, as far as the, the Catholic view of Revelation is concerned. Now, Revelation is the divine disclosure, the fact that God reveals himself. God wants to be known and allows himself to be known. That's Revelation. And according to Catholicism, how does God do that? It does that by three streams. On the one hand, you add the scriptures. Catholic theology, Catholic Church affirms the inspiration of scripture as the word of God, written. But the word of God is also organically related to an oral tradition, 
something that is bigger than the Word of God written, something that goes beyond the boundaries of the canonical books, something that comes from God as the, word, as the written Word of God comes to us. And so tradition, with capital T, embraces, envelops the Bible, but is bigger than the Bible. The Bible is only part of this bigger tradition. Revelation comes to us through the Bible, but the Bible is not the only means that it comes, revelation comes to us because it is preceded and embraced by a bigger oral revelation. The Bible is only part of it. And who decides what is this oral revelation? It is the magisterium, the official teaching of the church which is the living voice of God, reading the scriptures, gathering the oral traditions, and speaking them into the present context. So if we want to uh, keep all these elements together, what is the end result? Now, yes and no together was difficult to read. But who is able to read this? There, there are bits of scripture, there are bits of tradition, and they are connected by the teaching office of the church. The end result is confusing, to say the least. Actually, it is not even pronounceable. And that's why most people don't understand, because they recognize that in papal speeches, church's teachings, they reckon, oh, they're quoting scripture. Praise God, they're quoting scripture. But then, the second line, well, they're saying something very different. Where does it come from? It comes from tradition. But then, they affirm something that is not in scripture. Where does it come from? It comes from the magisterium. And Catholicism is able to assemble all these elements together in the same breath. And so we have, we, we have the need to understand the dynamics of what the Catholic Church believes and teaches. And ultimately, you can refer this composite view of Revelation to the yes and no pattern. There are yes elements taken from the Bible, there are no elements taken from elsewhere. And the system is able to join them together. The same pattern can be seen in the, in the vital relationship between Christ and the church. The Catholic Church basically thinks that the church as it is, the institutional, papal, hierarchical church is the prolongation of the incarnation of Christ. Of course, they believe that Christ, after uh, dying and raising from the dead, he ascended to the Father. But they also believe that the, 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 the institutional church is the ongoing prolongation of that incarnation. 
Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. But the church brings his presence visible, physically visible in the world. And so that's why they can claim that the Pope is the vicar of Christ, representing Christ, is the physical, visible expression of the presence of Christ on earth. That's why they believe that in the Eucharist, in Holy Communion, the body and blood of Christ are materially present. That's why they believe that in the, uh, in the teaching office of the church, when the church pronounces and promulgates a new dogma, it is God speaking to the church and through the church. The church continues the incarnation, no longer according to the bodily presence of Christ, but according to the mystical presence of Christ, embodied in the church. So, that allows the church to claim the, uh, the prerogatives of Christ and relating them to the church itself. So, Christ is king, priest, and prophet. And uh, the Catholic Church claims to, to have received the royal office of ruling not only the church, but for many centuries, the claim was that the church had been given the power to rule the world. Why? Because the Pope was the representative of Christ, the King of Kings, and the visible vicar substitute of Christ. The church being the priest, Christ is the, the, the high priest, the church continuing that priestly role by being given the task of channeling his grace through the sacraments. So whatever the church does in terms of the sacraments, it is the priestly office of Christ applied to present-day reality. And when it comes to the prophetic role of Christ, the church, when it speaks authoritatively, it speaks the word of Christ, as if Christ was present, uh, preaching, speaking prophetically in the present day time. So, whenever Christ is mentioned, you look at the catechism, you look at Catholic teaching, whenever Christ is mentioned, there is always the church in the background, the institutional church. Whenever Christ is mentioned, there is always the church in the background. And the two, of course there are connections between Christ and the church, but we have to define this connection biblically. This is a, a different way of connecting the two. Of course, the church needs to witness to the presence of Christ, but Christ is uniquely has lived out his incarnation in a unique way, and the incarnation is over. We are not replicating the incarnation here. We are witnessing to its reality, waiting for his second coming, but we are not the incarnated presence of Christ in the world. So, Christ, again, is a, is a common word. The church is a common word 
but the definition, the meaning of it is very different. And so the end result, again, is difficult to pronounce. Yes and no elements. The same is true as far as the relationship between the cross and the Eucharist. The cross is the once and for all event of Jesus dying for our sins. And the Holy Communion is, even the Reformers had different views of it. But according to Catholic teaching, the cross only has, can have benefits for us if it is re-enacted, represented in the Eucharist. In and of itself, the cross is not efficacious if it's not re-enacted in the sacrament administered by the church. And therefore, it is through the Eucharist that the blessings of the, of the cross can be received by the sinner. And it is through the sacrament of the church that the cross can be appreciated and, and, and in all its benefits. Again, you see yes and no elements combined together. When the Catholic Church thinks of the cross, she thinks of the Eucharist. And when it thinks of the cross, she thinks of the church presenting the sacrifice, representing the sacrifice of the cross. It is not a once and for all event in history only. It is an ongoing administration of that sacrifice reenacted in the Eucharist. So we are, we, are, we are speaking the same words, cross, Eucharist, but we are meaning very different things. And again, the end result is that it is difficult to pronounce. <laughs> and you have to understand what is the genetic code if you want to grasp it. Otherwise, you will see your, our limited view would immediately detect, you know, the letters that we can put together. Oh, there is the cross there. Praise God. Well, wait a minute. There is the cross, but there is also something else. And that something else defines what is, what is in there. And we have to take the whole if we want to be fair to the Catholic Church. What I'm saying now is not something that I'm trying to superimpose on Catholic teaching, but trying to grasp it from within and to make it understandable to simple people like me. Otherwise, there is complexity here. There are lots of complexity and nuances. But once, if you don't understand the matrix of it, you will be confused. And that is what is happening all over the world. I will address a few misconceptions that we have that are common in our uh, Protestant evangelical uh, perception of Catholicism. The first misconception is this. A spiritual renewal is occurring in the Catholic Church. And this is true. After Vatican II, the Catholic Church has opened itself to different trends, different spiritualities. It has allowed the laity to read the Bible. It has allowed 
the laity to have access to uh, Bible translations in the vernacular languages. That's all good, and we praise God for it. But at the same time, it has also opened itself to a variety of other spiritualities. Every spirituality is now increasing in the Catholic Church. Marian spirituality, Marian movements are increasing all over the world. More political, politically driven movements are increasing all over the world. Marian apparitions are increasing all over the world, gathering millions of pilgrims to Marian shrines and attracting lots of attention. Folk, spir uh, spiritualities marked by folk religion are attracting more, many people around the world. You see, the Catholic Church is not only going through a spiritual renewal in one direction only, but is going through a renewal in all directions at the same time. So you have the charismatic Catholic movement, you have the Marian Catholic movement, and the two stem from the same matrix. They are not considered as being in conflict, but they're actually two arms of the same project, the Catholicity project, the embracement project, whereby the church opens up its arms towards the world in order to embrace it and gathering it around the Roman institutions. How many of you have visited Rome? Well, you're welcome to come if you want to. But one way of understanding this vision is to look at the way in which architects uh, designed church architecture. In many ways, architects are better theologians than theologians. If you want to read Catholic theology, it may be daunting, it may be difficult, it may be a long process, but if you want to understand what is at stake here, you just come, you have to come to St. Peter's Square and the way in which it is designed. This big cupola, St. Peter's cupola, designed by Michelangelo, and two arms stretched out in order to embrace the whole world and uh, allowing diversity within the church, within the square, allowing degrees of being closer or further to the center, to the cupola, representing the power or the, uh, the presence of the church, and wanting all the world to be included. And of course, architects looked at the church as a powerful institution. They wanted to be, this building to be impressive, and in front of this building, you as individual, you feel yourself as a very small person and in need to be protected by a powerful institution, a powerful mother wanting to embrace you. And you are safe if you are within the embracement of the mother. And you, are, you have problems if you want to stay outside of it.
You see, the architects uh, understood what was at stake with uh, Renaissance and early modern Catholicism and gave it a architectural form that can be seen quite clearly. But behind it, there is this uh, vision whereby the system is a living one. Catholic Church is not a dead institution. It's a living system, expanding, offering different options, all then trying to uh, bring them under the institutions of the church. Another uh, kind of misconception. Yeah, of course there are differences, but there is a common creedal basis. There are differences in the doctrines of ecclesiology, the church, in the doctrines of salvation, in the doctrines of the sacraments, in the doctrines of the papacy, in the doctrines of indulgence and purgatory, but there is a common creedal basis. That is, we confess together the reality of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and we confess together the basic Christian message as it was outlined in the early centuries of the church. Now, that is in part true in that the Catholic Church is committed to creedal Christianity. The creed is um, professed at every service in the Catholic Church. But given the nature of Catholicism, uh, it, we, we, we should be uh, wary today to think about the, the, the mere profession of the same words means professing the same truths. Professing the fact that we believe in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, doesn't necessarily mean that we share the same Trinitarian framework, the same Trinitarian faith. And given the developments in post-patristic times in the Catholic Church, where other teachings were added to this Trinitarian framework. Mary, for instance, was, is an example in which the Catholic Church invested not only doctrinally, dogmatically, but also spiritually in the development of Mariology. And for many Catholics, Mary is the closest figure they can refer to when they think about God. Now, that aspect, that truth, for example, shows that although we may profess formally the same Trinitarian creed, but when it comes to practice, that creed is only formally spoken and recognized. When people are more interested in developing a relationship with Mary or the saints, it means that although we profess formally the same creed, the Son is considered as a too remote figure. The Spirit is considered as someone who is not really near to us. Mary is near. The Son and the Spirit, we don't know. The Father is way, way, way beyond. And if we do that, practically, we are undermining the Trinitarian framework of our faith. 
You see what I'm, I'm trying to suggest? I'm not saying that we, are, we don't have, this, formally, we don't have the same creedal basis, but practically, given the development of the Catholic Church in areas like Mariology, in areas like Purgatory, in areas like the Papacy, in areas like the Eucharist and so on, practically, these Trinitarian boundaries have been stretched to the point of being affirmed formally, but practically being denied or having added other elements which obscure the Trinitarian shape of our faith. And there is a sense in which what we heard this morning about the role of the Spirit gives us an insight into what was at stake five centuries ago. The Reformation was not only something concentrated on salvation, justification, and the nature of the church, but it was a concentrated effort to rediscover the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of the final authority of the Bible because it had recovered a full Trinitarian perspective which had been obscured along the centuries. Only recovering the authority of the Father, the mission of the Son, the role of the Spirit, if you recover that, you can then reaffirm the doctrine of justification by faith, the doctrine of the ultimate authority of the Bible, the doctrine of the role of the Spirit. These are not detached issues. The Reformers were, of course, working in the areas of soteriology and ecclesiology, but they, they could do this work because they were reappreciating, re-embracing, reaffirming the Trinitarian pattern of the Christian faith. And, okay, the, first, the last uh, misconception we want to deal with is this one, very common. We deal with individual Catholics not with Roman Catholic institution. Now, most Catholics I know, individually taken, don't have a clue of what Catholicism is all about. I was one of them. I was Catholic, born into a Catholic family, born into a Catholic nation, and so on and so forth. I did not have a clue of what Catholicism was all about. I, uh, I had absorbed certain traditions, certain ideas, certain cultural patterns, but, and I, I, I believed I belonged to Christ, the church, whatever, I didn't know. And I was a nominal Catholic. I was Catholic by name, but did not have a clue of what the Catholic church taught, okay? And so don't think that what I'm trying to say applies to each individual Catholics you know. But at the same time, the Catholic Church is also a social religion, institutional religion. Of course there are individuals. Of course there are true believers in the Catholic Church. Of course there are many people who are confused. Of course there are many Catholics who are Catholics only because they have born, they, they, they were raised in Catholic context. 
But as we think about the Catholic Church, we need always to have in mind the fact that the Catholic Church is not a collection of a bunch of individuals. It is an institution. It is an historical, sacramental, hierarchical, political, economic institution. And so while loving our neighbors and loving our Catholic friends, we need to be aware of the big picture. Otherwise, we will only concentrate our analysis of, of Catholicism to individual stories. They are important, but they don't make up the full picture that we need to be aware of.